If you have a Bible or an electronic instrument that has a Bible app, uh, you can turn to Mark 11. Mark 11. This particular text we are about to read is called Jesus' Triumphal Entrance into Jerusalem. Church tradition has also named this Palm Sunday. This text starts the Passion Week, also called Holy Week. It's called the Passion Week because the word passion, according to its ancient usage, meant suffering. And that was the week Jesus suffered in sacrificing himself for our sins. The blockbuster Mel Gibson produced movie, The Passion of the Christ, um, actually only covered 12 hours of Christ's passion from his arrest in the garden to the crucifixion. In a traditional sense, the Passion Week was the last week of Jesus' time on earth ending just before his resurrection. Now let me set this up. Most people recognize the word liturgical. Liturgical. The word liturgical means a prescribed form for public religious services or rituals. A prescribed form for public religious services or rituals. In a technical sense, and don't miss this, in a technical sense, all congregations are liturgical. Since all congregations subscribe to some form of prescribed structural format for public services. Congregations that hold to a more predetermined, rigid, and regimented, structured, formal liturgical worship format are Roman Catholics, different Orthodox groups, Anglicans, Episcopalians, Lutheranism, and to some degree other mainline Protestant denominations such as Presbyterians and Methodists. Most of these congregations have robed and vested pastors or priests. Uh, liturgical vestments are liturgical garments and articles. A clerical collar is a simple vestment. A stole worn around the neck is a vestment. If it has a cross sewed onto it, sometimes a priest will kiss it before putting it on. And these are some examples. Uh, this is a mass, and notice the vestments um, that the priest is wearing. That may be a bishop, I'm not certain. These are different robes with vestments. And then uh, these are probably Protestant pastors in formal robes. Catholics use incense, incense in worship. Uh, <laughs> cut that out of the... <laughs> if you talk as much as I do, things happen, okay? <laughs> Most of them use religious symbols and candles... Uh, there was sometimes the congregational recitation of the Lord's Prayer or the Apostles' Creed. Congregants are sometimes requested to stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down, and often. Congregants are sometimes requested to kneel on kneeling benches attached to the back of pews. Congregants are sometimes required to the front of the sanctuary in order to receive communion. Orthodox Christian groups use extensive religious icons. Icons, religious icons, are two-dimensional religious paintings that represent biblical events, biblical characters, and famous saints. Uh, icons are not objects to be worshipped. 
um, only act as spiritual reminders. Um, in some formal liturgical congregations, there is a pulpit off to the right side in the front where sermons are preached, and then there's a smaller lectern off to the left side uh, where laymen read scripture, pray, and read announcements. And in most uh, more structured and formal liturgical congregations, there is an altar in the center. This is an example of that, uh, an altar, and then another example of a larger and more, um, I guess, decorated altar. Um, Since the Reformation period, some five centuries ago, two words have evolved that have helped describe the differences between more structured, formal liturgical denominations and less structured, more informal liturgical denominations. More formal liturgical congregations are considered high church, and more informal liturgical congregations are considered low church. Those words, high church and low church, primarily describe the congregational worship procedure. That's the reason some Protestant denominations, although not Catholic in teaching, not Catholic in doctrine, are still almost Catholic in some worship practices, causing them to be classified as high church. An example of that, Lutheranism is a Protestant denomination, but most, not all, but most Lutheran congregations are considered high church. Because even though on January 3rd, 1521, under the direction of Pope Leo X, the famous Protestant reformer Martin Luther was excommunicated from the Catholic Church, he still retained some liturgical Catholic rituals and practices. Now here at Shadow Mountain, we are more liturgical light. We are considered more low church because there's less formal structure and ritual and more freedom in our worship forms. Baptist denominations, Pentecostal denominations, Quaker congregations, Nazarene congregations, and numerous other denominations and groups, and in addition, most independent non-denominational groups such as Calvary chapels are considered low church. And the reason is because these groups, including us, do not believe that worship Uh, that scripture mandates or scripture requires a particular prescribed form of public worship service. Now, don't misunderstand this. We aren't against liturgical worship forms per se. We're not opposed to that. Unless, Unless a particular liturgical form is inconsistent or contradicts scripture. So some liturgical forms are good and some liturgical forms are not so good. One thing I do appreciate about some more formal liturgical Protestant congregations is that there is a sense of reverence, a sense of holiness and awe and reverence for God in worship that is missing in most contemporary low church evangelical congregations. Um, I have been to some of those where these hyper Contemporary congregations, because of concert characteristic decibel levels during worship, are forced to literally pass out earplugs to congregants, are so low church, these places are almost no church. And there's no facsimile of reverence in worship at all. That brings me to this. The more structured, formal liturgical churches use a liturgical calendar. 
these congregations operate according to an annual liturgical calendar that consists of the cycle of different liturgical seasons and which colors those seasons uh, represent. Also, that calendar determines when certain celebrations are held and which scripture portions are to be read and when. We are now, at this moment, in the liturgical Lenten season. This is now the liturgical Lenten season. Lent is considered a time of penance and self-purification. It is a season to fast and to practice moderation and self-denial. Lent starts on Ash Wednesday and lasts until the Saturday before Easter. The length of Lent was established in the 4th century as 46 days, or 40 days not counting Sundays. It's interesting that on Ash Wednesday, the parking lot at St. Gauls is jammed full. In fact, leaking over into our parking lot, which is fine. We allow them to use our parking lot. Uh, Catholics attend church on Ash Wednesday. The formal name is Day of Ashes, and Catholics attend church in Mass and have ashes rubbed onto their foreheads in the form of a cross. In 2022, Lent started on March 2nd and ends on April 16. During Lent, participants are required to give up something. It might be actual fasting, meaning eating no food, or it could be partial fasting, not eating a particular food, such as no chocolate or nothing containing caffeine. It could be giving up a habit for that time period, such as not smoking, a good recommendation. Some women actually give up cosmetics, not a good recommendation. <laughs> it could mean... <laughs> I'm sorry, hope he, hope he gave me that joke. I, did, I wouldn't... Have. <laughs> it could mean... It could mean to discontinue using social media during the Lenten season, although that is too traumatizing to most people. The point is people are supposed to give up something during Lent. Now, none of these practices we have mentioned have biblical roots. Ash Wednesday isn't mentioned or even alluded to in Scripture, and neither is Lent. Don't misunderstand that, though. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean that those things are necessarily wrong. Some of them are good. But it does mean there is, there's no biblical prescription to practice them. But the end of Lent concludes at the end of Passion Week. Throughout the centuries, the organized church has assigned a specific name to each day of Passion Week. Uh, so let's go through them. The beginning of Passion Week is called Palm Sunday. The church tradition teaches that the text we are about to read from Mark's gospel happened on that Sunday. This is Palm Sunday. I can't get into specifics, but some historians and theologians argue that this entrance into Jerusalem on the part of Jesus was on that Monday and not Sunday. So according to them, it should be Palm Monday, not Palm Sunday. I have read those arguments. Um, and I'm not fully convinced of that, so we're going to go with the Christian tradition that this all happened on Sunday. Monday is Holy Monday. Holy Monday. On that notable Monday, Jesus cursed the fig tree 
and he cleansed the temple a second time. Tuesday is Holy Tuesday. On that Tuesday, Jesus responded to different challenges from the Pharisees and Sadducees about marriage, about taxation to Rome. Uh, At another time, uh, on Tuesday, he spoke his seven woes against the Pharisees, found in Matthew 23. He said seven times, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He also spoke a number of parables, on Tuesday and also taught an important prophetic sermon called the Olivet Discourse. Wednesday is Spy Wednesday. On that Wednesday, Judas Iscariot went to the Jewish authorities and agreed to turn Jesus over to them in exchange for money. The word spy is used in this context to mean ambush or snare. And that word describes Judas literally ambushing and snaring Jesus in the garden at night so he could be arrested. But that process started on Wednesday. Thursday is Maudy Thursday. Maudy Thursday. Jesus did two important things on that Thursday. One, he washed his disciples' feet. And second, he instituted communion at the Passover meal. The word Maudy is from a Latin word meaning command and is a reference to the command Jesus gave his disciples to serve one another. Friday is Good Friday. Jesus was tortured, tried, and then crucified on that Friday. He died and then was buried that night. Now, some people misunderstand the word good in Good Friday. It wasn't good for Jesus because he died one of the most brutal deaths imaginable. But his death was good for us because his sacrifice for sins made forgiveness possible. And besides, etymologists believe the word good just meant pious and holy. Saturday is Holy Saturday. On that Saturday, Roman soldiers were stationed at the garden tomb, standing there where Jesus was buried so no one could steal the corpse. Saturday marks the actual end of Passion Week. The next day was Sunday, And that Sunday was Resurrection Sunday. On that Sunday morning, Jesus was resurrected from the dead, meaning he was dead, he was buried, and then he was made alive. In a societal sense, it's most often called Easter. The Passion Week starts on Palm Sunday, this morning, at Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, and then ends on Holy Saturday, the day before Easter Sunday, when we celebrate Christ's resurrection from the dead. So what we are about to read starts the Passion Week. Palm Sunday is described in all four Gospels, Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12. So this morning we're reading from Mark's Gospel. Since this account is mentioned in all four Gospels, we should understand that this is extremely important. This text is called Jesus' Triumphal entrance into Jerusalem, but notice there were no actual formalities associated with this entrance into Jerusalem. There were no dignitaries present, no regalia, no fanfare. This wasn't a true coronation, as we will see. Verse 1, now when they, Jesus and his 12 disciples, drew near Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, He sent two of his disciples. We have no clue about Bethpage. 
as there is no other biblical, historical, and or archaeological evidence of its existence. We believe Bethpage was a small village about a mile east of Jerusalem. At Bethpage, Jesus stopped and then sent two of his disciples on ahead. We don't know the names of those men. Although some believe those disciples were Peter and John, we aren't certain though. Jesus was about to end his public ministry. Most biblical historians believe Jesus was 33 at this time. Bill O'Reilly authored a best-selling book called Killing Jesus. Um, I read that publication. He said Jesus was 36 at this time. Not sure where he found that number, and in the bigger scheme, it doesn't matter. Most theologians and historians, though, believe Jesus was 33 at this time. So Jesus and his disciples were journeying to Jerusalem. Those men were going there to attend the annual Passover celebration. The Passover was, and still is, the most celebrated Jewish tradition. Passover celebrates the Jewish exodus from ancient Egypt. The Jewish people had been held as slaves in Egypt for four centuries. And then God did a series of ten miracles to convince Pharaoh to give permission to Moses to free his people. Jesus had been earlier ministering in Jericho where he facilitated the healing and conversion of two blind men. In addition, he had facilitated the conversion of a hated tax collector he found up in a tree named Zacchaeus. All of that, plus he had just resurrected a man from the dead named Lazarus. So this had gotten out and people had heard about these things. So a sizable number of people came out to see him. His reputation as a doer of miracles preceded him. Some estimate the number of people that lined the streets to see Jesus exceeded 100,000 people. And that's possible because Jerusalem's total population swelled to unbelievable proportions at Passover. According to a census taken just one decade after this, there were some 260,000 lambs sacrificed in the temple at Passover. And because one lamb was permitted to be offered up for up to 10 people, there could have been more than 2 million worshipers celebrating that Passover. Jerusalem was just jammed with Jewish worshipers. Jesus, though, was on a mission from God, and that mission was to sacrifice himself for the sins of mankind. But Jesus wasn't a victim of his circumstances. Jesus was in absolute control of all that happened during Passion Week. He was scheduled to die, but he would die on his own terms. I might add, Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem was actually predicted as part of Daniel's 70 prophetical weeks. Verse 2, And Jesus, and he, Jesus, said to them, Jesus said to those two disciples he had selected to go ahead, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. Those disciples were told to find a mother donkey and her colt, and then to bring that colt to him. Now, notice something unusual. Jesus did not tell those disciples to first ask permission before 
bringing him that donkey. Now, we would find that unacceptable. It would be the same as us telling someone, I want you to go to this house. This is the address. There's a car in the driveway, and the owner left his keys in the car on accident. Get in the car and drive it here. Now, if we did that, that owner could and should call the police and report that his car had just been stolen. So I would suggest not doing that. But Jesus could do that. We can't. He could. Verse 3, Jesus continued, And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Meaning apprehending this donkey. Say, The Lord has need of it. And immediately, He will send it here. Jesus did anticipate uh, that someone or someones would question what these men were doing. Loosening this donkey that had been tied up and bringing him to Jesus, and that happened. Luke 19, verse 33, reads that the animal's owners did ask those men what they were doing. Those men repeated Jesus' instructions and said, the Lord has need of him. The owners then gave them permission to have that colt. Verse 2 said that this colt had never been ridden before. Given, giving these men permission to have a donkey that had never been ridden was considered a gesture of respect and honor. In effect, it's said that this animal had been reserved especially for Jesus. Verse 4, So they, these two men, went their way and found the coat tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. Verse 5, But some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing loosening the coat? Now Jesus had never been to Bethpage before. Jesus hadn't sent someone ahead to arrange for this coat to be available to those disciples. He also specified that the coat he wanted had never been ridden. All of that demonstrated Jesus' omniscience. Omniscience is a divine attribute. Omniscience means all knowledge, that someone has all possible knowledge. Um, no one else is omniscient other than God. So Jesus could not have had that knowledge, those particulars about that situation, unless he was also God. And he was God and still is God. Jesus was and is both man and God. And he was exercising his divine omniscience here in giving these particular instructions to those disciples. And all that happened as Jesus anticipated it would happen. Verse 6, And they spoke to them, just as Jesus had commanded. So they, the owners of this donkey, let them go. Verse 7, Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it. And he sat on it. Probably, you know, it, if they put their clothes on his back, it would have been more comfortable for him to ride, I'm assuming. This all happened as a result of a messianic prophecy from Zechariah. Messianic prophecies, uh, and prophecies are predictions. Messianic prophecies are prophecies and predictions that were made in the Old Testament centuries before those prophecies and predictions were fulfilled in the Messiah. As Christians, we believe that Jesus was that promised Messiah. There are some 333 messianic verses in the Old Testament and some 60 major messianic prophecies. And Zechariah 9 and verse 9 is one of those. Notice, it reads, Rejoice greatly, 
O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king, that is Messiah. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. Notice, lowly and riding on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah the prophet was recorded between 520 B.C. and 470 B.C., somewhere in there. So this prophetical statement made about the Messiah, Jesus, was made some five centuries before its exact fulfillment in Jesus. From a statistical perspective, it has been determined that the chances of someone else other than Jesus fulfilling all those Messianic prophecies is outside the idea of being possible. The fact Jesus was riding on a donkey and not a horse symbolizes his coming was not at that time to reign, but to die. Some biblical commentators call this event a coronation. A coronation is the ceremonial crowning of a ruler, such as crowning a king. This wasn't an actual coronation. This was just a preview of the future messianic coronation as there's not an actual coronation until Jesus returns to the earth and establishes his messianic reign. It's interesting that when Jesus does return to the earth to establish his messianic millennial rule from Jerusalem, that he returns riding on a white horse. But in this case, on Palm Sunday... Jesus was riding on a donkey. And that meant Jesus did not come the first time to reign. Instead, he came to die. Verse 8. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. There was a great multitude of people that were congregating around Jesus. Some went before him on the road, and some went after him. The people, people took off their robes and spread them across the road where Jesus would ride. It was an ancient custom for people to spread their robes across the road for a monarch, a king, to ride over. It symbolized great respect and symbolized submission to that man's authority. In addition, according to John 12, verse 13, the people cut down palm branches and also spread those palm branches across the road that's the reason this is called palm sunday palm branches represented being victorious and triumph and that's just an artist's rendering of what it might have looked like verse 9 then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Verse 10, blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now imagine this. There was almost mob hysteria. This crowd was going nuts taking off their robes, laying them out on the road, cutting down palm branches, scattering the branches across the road. Jesus was presenting himself to the Jewish masses as the promised Messiah. And the people were responding to that claim. Notice the people said, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The crowd acknowledged in unison 
together that Jesus was the son of David. Now, don't miss this. In Scripture, Jesus was called the Son of God. He was also called the Son of Man. He was also called the Son of Abraham, meaning a descendant from Abraham, the physical progenitor of the Jewish people. He was also called the Son of Mary, meaning he was the immediate descendant from his mother Mary. And he was called the Son of David the son of God, the son of man, the son of Abraham, the son of Mary, and the son of David. The son of David meant Jesus was a direct descendant from King David. And the son of David was the most common and most often used messianic title. So at that moment, at this moment, in this text, the crowd was convinced Jesus was the promised Jewish Messiah. That's fantastic. That's so great, except there was a problem. The problem was that this crowd did not understand what the Messiah was supposed to be and supposed to do. That crowd was confused about the true nature of the Messiah. We've done this on multiple times, so this is review for some of us. The older I get, the more I need review. So I think this might be helpful. But let me explain the concept of Messiah. God had promised his covenant people, the Jewish people, a Messiah. The word Messiah meant God's anointed one or anointed king since kings were anointed in the Old Testament. My Messiah was an ancient Hebrew word and Christ is the identical word in the ancient Greek language. So both Messiah and Christ mean the same thing. Both mean God's anointed one, or God's anointed king, or a divine monarch, or a divine king. God promised his people a Messiah. And according to those different Old Testament messianic prophecies, that Messiah would ultimately be two extremely important things. One, Messiah would be a savior. Savior means forgiver. The Messiah would forgive people from sin. Isaiah 53 contains multiple messianic prophecies. Notice Isaiah 53 verse 3. He, Messiah, is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He, Messiah, was despised and we did not esteem him. Verse 4. Surely he, this is Messiah, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Verse 5, but he, Messiah, was wounded for our transgressions. He, Messiah, was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Verse 6, should sound familiar, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, Messiah, the iniquity of us all. Iniquity is most often translated uh, from an ancient Hebrew word meaning guilt from a sin that is deserving of punishment. So iniquities are sins. At his crucifixion, this messianic Jesus was punished for our iniquities. Our iniquities were put on him. And he was punished for our sins and iniquities so we wouldn't have to be. And he did that 
so he could become our savior and forgiver. Second, though, Messiah would be a king. A king, Daniel 7, verse 14. We read this in our series in Daniel. Then to him, Messiah, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That's the messianic kingdom. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. This messianic Jesus is scheduled to also be the king of all kings and lord of all lords. Now, during the first century, the first half of the first century, there were some exceptions because we know some people, the Jewish people, did accept Jesus as this Messiah. But overall, the ancient Jewish nation argued that Jesus was a messianic imposter. Now, don't miss this one. One primary reason the people felt Jesus was a fraudulent Messiah was that first century Jewish people didn't understand the double nature of the Messiah. Remember, we just said the Messiah was prophesied to be both a savior and a king. Not just a savior and not just a king. But Messiah would be both a savior and a king. The Jewish people wanted a national deliverer. The Jewish people wanted someone that would free them from the tyrannical control of the Roman government and rule them as king. The people wanted a king to deliver them from Rome. But the Jewish people weren't interested in someone to save them from sin. The people wanted to be rescued from Rome, but not rescued from sin because they felt they could do that on their own as most Jewish people still do think. The Jewish nation understood that Messiah would be a king, but they didn't understand that Messiah would also be a savior. So most first century Jewish people rejected Jesus as this promised Messiah. The Jewish authorities, in collaboration with the Romans, then had Jesus crucified. He died. He was buried and then resurrected from the dead. And then he ascended into heaven. So this crowd on Palm Sunday started shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. The word Hosanna meant save now. Save us now. So the people wanted Jesus to save them now. But the problem was this Palm Sunday crowd wanted Jesus to save them from Roman rule, not save them from sin. This crowd wanted saving from the Roman government, but not saving them from sin and sin's eternal consequences. That's the reason this same crowd that on Palm Sunday cried out Hosanna to the son of David, then on Good Friday screamed, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. One commentator said this about this crowd. These people wanted Jesus on their own terms. These people wanted a Messiah that would defeat Rome, but ignore their sins and hypocritical, superficial religion. But Jesus refused to deliver them on their own terms. Even now, even now, people are open to a Jesus that will bring them success, riches, and health. But like this multitude on the first Palm Sunday, these selfish people will denounce Jesus and reject Jesus when he doesn't give them what they want. 
That is what happened during Passion Week. Verse 11, And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple, and when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is an anticlimactic statement. That statement, though, reinforces the fact that the preceding verses we just read did not describe a true coronation. This massive crowd would completely turn on Jesus toward the end of Passion Week. Jesus came to give people what they needed and not just what they wanted. Someone said if man's greatest need had been information, then God would have sent us an educator. If man's greatest need had been technology, then God would have sent us an engineer. If man's greatest need had been health and wellness, then God would have sent us a doctor. If man's greatest need had been money, then God would have sent us an economist. But people, man's greatest need is forgiveness, so God sent us a savior. It was sometime in the earliest morning hours on Good Friday that Jesus had been brought to the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. The Jewish highest court, similar to our U.S. Supreme Court, that court was called the Sanhedrin, consisting of 70 members plus the high priest, 71 men. That court had unjustly and wrongly accused Jesus of blasphemy. Jesus claimed to be God's son, meaning he claimed to be equal to God. He claimed to be God himself. And that was anathema to them. That claim was blasphemous to those Jewish authorities. So blasphemy was considered a capital offense according to the ancient Mosaic Code, meaning that someone who committed blasphemy should die for that. Meaning that according to those men, since in their mind Jesus had committed gross blasphemy, Jesus deserved to die. But there was a little hang-up. Jewish authorities could do as those men did, could legally try someone and determine someone's guilt in a capital court case such as this. But that, that was it. They could only determine guilt or innocence. If the man was guilty of a capital offense and deserved to die, those men didn't have permission to actually execute someone because the Roman Empire ruled the Roman province where Jerusalem was located. It was Rome and only Rome that had permission to conduct executions. So that's the reason Jesus was brought to the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. Pilate governed Judea including Jerusalem. So Jesus stood before Pilate, and this was part of that exchange between them. John 18, verse 35. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? That was a rhetorical question. Pilate was a non-Jewish Gentile, as most of us are. And actually, Pilate was one of the most anti-Semitic anti-Jewish rulers in the empire. It's interesting that he was assigned that province. Am I a Jew? Your own nation, Jesus, and the chief priest have delivered you to me. So what have you done? Verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. 
If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now, meaning now, at that moment in time, then Jesus said, my kingdom is not from here. Verse 37, Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. Pilate said to him, are you a king? Are you a king then? Jesus responded, yes, you are correct. I am a king. Jesus is the promised Messiah. And as such, he is the ultimate anointed king. At his future return to this earth, he will at that time sit on David's throne in Jerusalem and he will establish a literal global kingdom of peace and prosperity. But until then... Until that moment, he has limited himself to being a spiritual king. A king governing a spiritual kingdom, not of this world. He is the spiritual king of all those that receive him. Jesus the Christ, Jesus the promised Messiah is the king of me. He rules and reigns from my heart. And I am a part of his spiritual kingdom. Dr. S.M. Lockridge, Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge. I have no idea what his mother was thinking. (laughs) He died in 2000. For four decades, he pastored Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego. Dr. Lockridge was in serious demand across this nation because of his outstanding preaching. In Detroit in 1976, he preached his most famous sermon called, That's My King. At the end of that hour-long message, there's a a six-and-a-half-minute segment where he describes Jesus in a most articulate, creative, and biblical manner. And we're about to see an abbreviated variation of that famous segment. Millions and millions have seen this, including most of us since we do this on an almost annual basis, but it never, ever gets old. Watch this. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. 
He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent, and he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is lighter. I wish I could describe him to you. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! That's mocking! That's mocking! Would you bow your heads with me, please? I can sincerely say that Jesus is my King. The question that must be answered, is Jesus your King? Was there a moment in time, space, history you remember where you realized your sinfulness and understood your inability to save yourself and you knew that Jesus was the only available Savior and by faith from your heart, you reached out and said, Jesus, I need you. I want you. Save me from my sin. I want you to be my forgiver. Take over my life. If you've done that, then Jesus is your king. He's your forgiver and your spiritual king. And someday, he'll be your physical king when he comes to reign. But if you've done that, and you know you've done that, there's not a question or a doubt in your mind. You know that Jesus is in your life. You know he's your king. With our heads bowed, no one looking, would you raise your hand real high where I can see it? I want to know that. Can you raise your hand? If you're not certain, thank you. Thank you. Put him down if you would. I appreciate it. I know some couldn't, and I'm so appreciative of your being honest and sincere. Um, if you couldn't raise your hand, but I would love for you to be able to raise your hand the next time you were asked that question. If you couldn't raise your hand, I want you to do me a favor after the service. Just see me on your way out. Say, Pastor, I want to get together. Can we set up an appointment? Because I would be honored and thrilled to sit down with you and show you from the Bible how Jesus can be your king, how you can have a forgiver, a savior, 
and a king. I hope you will. Father in heaven, um, I cannot do anything to bring salvation to anyone. I can present the challenge uh, to people to evaluate themselves, which you said we are to do in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, but, I, but that's all I can do. So I pray God your Holy Spirit will convince and convict those in this room who are not saved that they need Jesus as soon as possible. I hope and pray that that will happen and heaven will rejoice because of it, as will we. And I thank you in the name of Jesus, your special son. Amen.